If you have a Bible or if you want to grab one from the pew in front of you, we are going to turn to Philippians chapter 3, page 981 in the pew Bibles. As you turn there, I want you to consider a question. Is there something that you desire above all other things? You would do just about anything, pay just about any cost to possess this one thing. Might be something material, maybe financial security or a certain type of lifestyle or maybe just a material possession that you would really love to have. Maybe something social, maybe a reputation or uh, a a relationship with somebody that you wish you you had an interaction with, a, a reconciled relationship maybe with somebody that you wish you had a relationship with. Might be something internal, Peace, just just to be able to have your mind and heart stilled and quieted or to to know the freedom of uh, the darkness of depression and just to know joy. Tonight, we look at God's Word. We're going to hear the Apostle Paul's answer to that question. His answer what he desires above all else, what he would give anything for, is to know Jesus Christ. As we think through and read through what the Apostle Paul says about this, I want to challenge you to to consider whether you agree with him or not. Whether this is the cry of your heart, that you want to know Jesus, or whether it is something else, drives you, something else that you are giving your life, maybe even giving your death for, something else that you desire. Before we turn to Philippians chapter 3, let's pray and ask God's help. Father, in your word is life. You reveal yourself tonight through your word. You give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to receive that which you would have for us, that we might be challenged by your word, we might be encouraged by your word, we might be convicted by your word, and we might be shaped by your word into the image of your Son, Christ, whose name we pray, amen. So we're going to start in uh, verse 7 of chapter 3, but before we do that, just a little bit of what is going on. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's writing specifically addressing a group of people called the Judaizers. He addresses this group in other letters. It was a group of Jewish people who were making the argument that in order to, to be fully obedient to Jesus, to be fully obedient to to what God had uh, demanded of you, you not only had to to look to Jesus, but you also had to uh, follow the Jewish law. You had to become circumcised. You had had to to abide by 
all of the Old Testament law, you, you had to essentially become a Jew uh, in order to, to be a Christian, in order to follow Christ. So what Paul does is he warns against this in, verses, in verse 2, and then in verse 3 through 6, he begins to lay out his own story. He lays out, recounting all of the things that he has going for him in that vein, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he's from the right tribe, that his heritage is right, and all of his performance has been right. He's been obedient. He's been zealous. So he, he lays out all of the advantages that he has going for him in the eyes of these Judaizers. And then we come to our passage. This is what he says, starting in verse 7, reading through verse 14. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. we think about these verses tonight, I want to do so uh, in three sections. I want us to think about the value of knowing Christ in verses 7 and 8, the nature of knowing Christ in verses 9 through 11, and the pursuit of knowing Christ in verses 12 through 14. Value, the nature, and the pursuit of knowing Christ. And we're going to start with the value of knowing Christ. As we jumped in in verse 7, Paul is starting a economics metaphor. He uses these terms, gain and loss, to describe the transformation that has happened within his heart. He has two categories in his ledger, two uh, sections that, that he's looking at. He has assets and he has deficits, gain and loss. And so far, in verses 3 through 6, everything has been in that gains column. Everything was to his advantage. All of the assets that he had listed, all of the things that that were his by birth and his through effort, he was, was putting and listing and putting confidence in as assets. And then in verse 7, he switches. And he says, all that he had viewed as gain, it's shifted over to the loss column. All that had seemed to be a source of pride and confidence, he now sees very differently. 
He sees them, as the prophet said, as filthy rags. His assets are exposed as deficits. And yet, as he's writing this, there's no forlorn regret in, in the tone of what we hear from Paul. There's no sense that uh, everything that he has worked so hard for is now for naught. No, he has made this switch with joy, and he says, for the sake of Christ. And then he repeats himself. Except this time, instead of saying, whatever was to my gain, I count loss, he says, I consider everything a loss. I'm, I'm putting everything in the, in the loss column for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, you have your two columns. He has now put everything that exists in the world in one column. And there's just one item in the gains column. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's the only asset that Paul now claims, Jesus. And for him, it's enough. For all of his life, Paul had been putting his faith in himself, in his heritage, in his performance. But he transfers all of his faith, he transfers the full weight of his confidence, the full weight of his joy onto Jesus who, if you remember, up until this, he had been persecuting. One of the things that was in his gain column was the zeal that he had in persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. But now, he worships this man, and he follows him as Lord. Encountering the crucified and risen Jesus changes a person. Not just in certain areas, not just in subtle ways. Faith transforms everything. The testimony of Paul. Frankly, it's the testimony of every Christian who has ever lived. I don't have time to recount all of that. But I was struck as I was thinking about this this week in in our college Bible study on campus on Tuesday night, we've been going through Hebrews 11. We've been looking at all of these different characters. What happens when these Old Testament men and women encounter God, they're changed. See the world differently. Their priorities are reoriented. I'm reading through one thing I love to do is read Christian biography. And every Christian biography I've read, encountering Jesus changes a person. Right now I'm reading John Payton. The encounter with Jesus radically changes him. It's the testimony many, many, many of you in this room. You encounter Jesus and everything changes. Whenever you meet Jesus, whatever you thought you possessed, whatever you were putting your confidence in, whatever you used to value, 
all of a sudden pales in comparison with all that he is. As I was flipping through earlier today, looking for that responsive reading, I, I started a little too far, and I flipped to the Nicene Creed, and I just listened to how Jesus is described. Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end." This is the Jesus that that Paul has encountered, that Paul desires to know. The one who is eternal from before the worlds began. The one through whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. The reason that you have breath right now is because of this Jesus. The reason that that your head is still attached to your body is because he is holding all things together. And he was born as a man. He lived as a man. He died sacrificial death. was raised victorious. He is seated at the right hand of God. He will come again. And as he was eternal past, he will be eternal forever. His kingdom will never end. One commentator that I read this week said, Christ is the all-surpassing gift who cannot be supplanted and with whom nothing can compete. We'll talk in a minute about some of the benefits that come from knowing Christ Jesus. But he is the prize. Everything else simply accompanies and is attached to him. To know this Jesus is what Paul counts everything else as rubbish compared to. Christian, is this your singular desire? Is this your only confidence? Do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? Because if he is who we just said he is, nothing can compare to knowing him to being in a right relationship with him. There is nothing that can challenge that in the asset column for Paul. The reality is, if, if we see that rightly, if we see him rightly, if we see what it means to know him, I think the same will be true for you and I. Let's turn now and consider 
the nature of knowing Christ Jesus? What does it mean? What comes with knowing Christ Jesus? Listen to how Paul describes this. That I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Gaining Christ, being found in Christ, knowing the power of Christ. What Paul is talking about is no mere head knowledge. Not simply talking about knowing of God, having heard somewhat distantly that this God exists. Not talking about knowing about him. He's not talking about simply having met him at a conference and shook his hand or being an acquaintance. He's talking about knowing Jesus in a personal, in an intimate, in a connected way. And this is an important distinction. Uh, this, this can and will make all the difference in the world. And, frankly, it will make all the difference in the world to come. Paul knows Jesus not simply by reputation, not simply uh, because he has heard of him, but in such a way that he is intimately connected with Jesus, so that what is associated with Jesus comes associated with Paul. What is true of Jesus comes true of Paul. That is how close this knowledge is. And this is the relationship that the Christian has with the Savior. You are united to him in such a way that your life, as Paul says in another one of his letters, is hidden with Christ. Your very identity and life are now filtered through the lens and viewed in relation to who Jesus is and to what he has done. I am not good with examples. I was trying all day. How, how can we, what is something that we can think about that, that will paint a little picture of this? All I could think of was uh, marriage. When Rachel and I got married, she took my last name. She became associated with Kevin McKelvey everywhere she went. She started her student teaching a couple months after she after we got married, and the name that that she gave to her students was not. Oh, you know, I used to be this, and now I'm this, or I'm kind of in between. No, she was Mrs. McKelvey, uh, almost from day one. Anybody that she met from there on out, she was associated with my family. She was welcomed at family events. She was welcomed in other places where I was welcomed. It's a small shadow of what it means to know Christ. But in a similar way, we become, when when we turn to him in faith, we become associated with him. As we take on his name, we are hidden with him. We're tied to him. 
And there are countless implications of, of what this means. But I just want us to consider three, which Paul mentions here in verses 9 through 11. You know Christ, you have his righteousness, you share his resurrection, you share in his sufferings and death. You have his righteousness. Sometimes I think this, this gets overlooked. We, we all know Jesus was perfect. And rightfully so, we, we spend a lot of time focused on crucifixion and, and focused on Easter and the resurrection. But his life mattered. He lived a sinless life. If he was not a righteous man, his death at Calvary would not have been effectual in any manner. If he was not a righteous man, death would have had a claim over him and he would not have been raised. But he was a righteous man. Not just the death and the resurrection that we find ourselves in, if we find ourselves in Christ. It is the life, death, and resurrection. His perfect life, his sinless obedience. Paul says the law is what Paul and these Judaizers had been putting their confidence in cannot ever provide righteousness. No amount of effort, no amount of pedigree will ever be able to achieve righteousness for you. The only confidence for right standing before God is nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What the holy God demands in his, in his law, he has provided through his Son. You who know Jesus through faith, you who are found in him, God looks upon you and sees you and sees in you the perfect righteousness of his Son. This is why Paul can say, everything else that I've been working with, everything else I've been working for, I consider loss now that I know Jesus. Because in him, I have a righteousness that I could never have had on my own. In addition to righteousness, those found in Christ receive resurrection. See in verses 10 and 11. Again, it's clear here, Paul is not simply talking about knowing facts, knowing dates and times and what happened. He doesn't want to just know about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He desires to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He wants to know and be involved in this resurrection. And he feels so strongly about it that he says he will use any means possible to attain this resurrection. We celebrated this morning, as we remember every Sunday, God has demonstrated to you, He has the power to give life. He has power over death. And Paul's saying, I want 
by any means possible, I want to partake in that. I want to partake in him who was raised from the dead. I think we can can understand this, this, this driving desire for life to escape the power of death. We see it all over, whether in the church or outside the church. Constant battle in our society to reverse the effects of aging, to find some way to prolong our life. Talk to the right people, find the right way to tie ourselves to some sort of technology that allows us to live forever. See this within religion, religious fervor of one sort or another. It's all seeking to somehow escape this reality of aging and death. Jesus said that he came that you may have life and that you may have it in abundance. He also said that this is eternal life, that you may know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. This is what Paul wants. He wants this eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. Do you want to share in that? Like Paul, would you do anything to attain this eternal life? It's yours. You know Jesus through faith. If you know him, you know the power of his resurrection. You who were dead in your sins and trespasses have been made alive in Christ. That is your present reality. It is your future hope. At the last day, you will be raised with him to glory forevermore. To know Christ is to share in his righteousness. To know Christ is to share in his resurrection. To know Christ is also to share in his sufferings and death. This one, this one may come across as a little bit more strange. When we think of becoming like Jesus, generally what we're referring to is something along the lines of growing in patience, wisdom, love for people around us. Paul here says that he is becoming like him in his death. Part of what it means to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, part of what it means to know him in such a way that you are identified with him, with his righteousness and with his resurrection, is that you are also identified with him in his sufferings and even in his death. And on the one hand, Part of what Paul is saying is, I will accept that for these other things and and maybe pursue knowing Christ in spite of that. 
even if it costs that, I'm still willing to do that for the joy set before me, as, as Jesus did. But I think in, a, in another sense, this is a real positive gift for the Christian. That this is a positive benefit that comes with knowing Jesus. Think with me in just two, two of the implications of what it means to, to sh- become like Jesus in his death, to share in his sufferings. One, Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. We don't become like him in that same way and that we can die so that someone else can be forgiven. His death was sufficient, that work is complete. But in his death, the scriptures are clear. We die to sin. We die to the world, to our own efforts at righteousness, to our sinful desires and passions. These things no longer have mastery over us. They no longer have control over us. So to become like Jesus, to share in his sufferings and to become like him in his death, for the Christian means freedom from the tyranny of sin. In addition, Jesus died for the sake of others. Again, our sharing in his death does not accomplish salvation in another, but it can point them toward their Savior. Part of what it means for someone to share in the sufferings of Christ and to become like him in his death is to have the privilege of being a part of the work that he is doing. In just a few verses, Paul is going to turn his attention to those who don't know Jesus, and he's going to say, as I have told you before and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. How are people who are lost going to hear the good news of the hope of knowing Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans that it's, it's when people are sent and go and tell of him. He explicitly says this in 2 Corinthians 4, makes this connection between dying as a believer and life in others, he says, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is how John Piper summarizes that argument. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation.
Another writer I read this week said, Christ died for propitiation. Our death is for propagation. Jesus died to save people. We get to share in his sufferings. We get to share even in his dying to be instruments of that message to those who need to hear. We've been talking about what it looks like to know Jesus, but to know Jesus is in part to desire to make him known to others. Even when that means the same thing that it meant for him, suffering and death for the sake of making the way of salvation known. Might mean a a loss of reputation, it might mean a financial loss, it might mean physical danger and loss, but it is a privilege to share in the sufferings and in the death of Jesus in this way. I want to be clear. Christian doesn't seek out suffering for the sake of suffering. We don't delight just to be miserable. Pursue Christ-likeness, not misery. The reality is that Christ-likeness will mean becoming like him in his death. And the Christian does not shy away from this because of the surpassing worth of God's glory, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, the surpassing worth of making him known and attaining the resurrection from the dead. All of this just starts to scratch the surface of what stems from knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. To know him means to share his um, righteousness. It means to share his resurrection. It means to share in his death. What do we do? Turn now to, to verses 12 through 14. With all of this in mind, Christian, you who know Jesus, his righteousness is yours. His resurrection power is yours. His death is yours. It's already yours. It belongs to you. You have gained it. It's in your asset column. And yet, none of us experience the full reality. Paul acknowledges this and says, it's not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. What does he do? Presses on. He strains forward, not looking back. He says, one thing I do. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call. Now, just a few verses ago, Paul was, was taking all of his effort, all of his works, and he was putting it in the deficit column. And now, here he is, once again, laboring intensely. Helps us to see there is a place for effort, but it must be rightly placed. What God has done must always come before what we do. Paul is pressing 
to take hold of the righteousness and the resurrection of Jesus, not being deterred by the suffering and even the death. But he's doing so because, as he says, Jesus has already taken hold of him. Here we see this delicate dance between God's work and our work. Your work must always be led by God's work. You get the order wrong, your efforts are rubbish. But what was trash before God's work, what's counted as loss, becomes the fruit of faith when it is done in response to God's work. So even though Paul says, everything that I, that I thought was gain, all this effort that I had done, I now count loss. Here, just a couple verses later, he says, and yet I'm going to continue to work diligently, to strive and to press and to strain towards this goal of knowing Jesus. He says it in an interesting way. He says, one thing I do. If you read Paul's letters, there's a lot of things he does. He's trying to pray continually. He's, he's making it his, his passion to, to share the name of Christ where it has not been heard. Uh, in, in one instance, he, he says that he feels free to leave a region because everything that he can do there has been done. So he's doing a lot of things, but I think what he's saying is everything I'm doing falls under this umbrella. Everything I'm doing is driven by this desire that I might know Christ, that I might share in his sufferings, that I might know his righteousness, that I might somehow share also in his resurrection. What would it look like for everything you do to be oriented in this direction? What would you need to count as loss? What would you want to add? Paul uses some really strong language in these, in these verses. He says, everything is a loss compared to Christ." Everything is trash. Because by any means possible, I want to attain. I'll do anything to share in this resurrection life. And he says, one thing I do. We go back even to verse 2. We see the strength of this language when he's referring to the Judaizers and he calls them dogs who mutilate the flesh. He's even stronger against them. In Galatians, saying, I wish they would go and emasculate themselves. He uses really strong language, I think, because this is really important. You were here this morning and you heard Pastor Jason preach. I I wrote this before I heard him, but I want to leave with the same question he asked. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know his righteousness as your own? Do you know what it is to share in his sufferings and death? Do you know the power of his resurrection? 
you don't, you are pursuing something other than knowing Jesus with all of your life, something other than obtaining his righteousness and sharing in his death and attaining to the resurrection of the dead with him. Reality is you're simply piling things up in your loss column. But if you do know him, then his righteousness is your righteousness. His life is your life. His death is your death. And as we conclude a week of especially focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want to encourage you to strain and strive and pursue and press on to take hold of what is yours through the righteous life, the sacrificial Good Friday death and Easter resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not deterred by suffering, knowing that one day you will see him face to face and you will know him perfectly. Pray with me toward that end. Father, would you help us to know you you grow in us a desire to know you? Would you help us to see rightly the world around us, to see rightly what is loss and gain, to see and to know, to rejoice in and to rest in surpassing worth of being found in you through knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.